These are uncertain times. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at registrysf.com. Before we get started today, I thought it would be interesting for me to comment on a couple of things that we're seeing across the industry that are really becoming indicative of where the industry is going to be and how the impact of COVID-19 is changing the landscape of commercial real estate. One of the things that I have learned over the years is that the truth usually lies somewhere in between when you look at different and opposing commentary about what is happening. And certainly these days, there is going to be a number of different analysts, economists, and people like that that are prognosticating and giving their perspective on the industry. And I know it's dangerous and it can be very scary to go after somebody that has a lot of tables and charts. Uh, but there was one particular economist that recently spoke at an organization in the East Bay whose perspective on what is happening today um, struck me, struck me in a sense that it was very optimistic, um, struck me in a sense that he blamed the media and the hysteria in the country as sort of the main cause of what is happening. He downplayed the risk of the virus. Uh, he downplayed the fact that 40 million people were unemployed, saying, you know, they are going to get their jobs very soon. And that basically this is kind of a three-month, four-month sort of cycle, and it will be, you know, roaring back in Q3. And it reminds me of some of the narrative uh, that the federal government or some folks in the federal government are echoing also. I, I don't know what is going to happen. I think the fact that um, there are a lot of differing perspectives on this tells us that nobody really knows what is what is going to happen. But the most important thing that I have noticed um, that really drives the industry more than anything is unemployment. And if these numbers are sustainable, if this 40 million um, group of unemployed Americans stays that way, I don't think there's going to be any, any way, any opportunity for a recovery in the short term. And I would be happy to go against anyone with charts and tables and argue my, my point of view. And so um, let's see how all that plays out. I think the, that will be probably the most important thing to watch and monitor and understand really where, where things are. Um, another thing that we're seeing throughout the industry is that the industrial and the multifamily sectors seem to be the ones that are that are most active. The industrial, for obvious reasons, um, the industrial space is really becoming sort of the backbone of the economy, and um, everything that we're seeing points to to that fact also. Um, everything that we do today, um, everything that we order, that we buy, most likely 
is going to come out of some warehouse rather than out of a store. And if those trends were going in that direction pre-COVID-19, I think they will only be accelerated going forward. So industrial continues to be uh, very interesting um, and very robust. And some indication from a couple of people that we know is that Q3 and Q4 are going to be periods of time where that will even accelerate. On the other hand, um, uh, the multifamily industry uh, continues to be the one where we are continuing to see some transactions. Some of these happen to be um, deals that were started pre-COVID-19, but it's interesting to see that this uh, part of the of, of the industry continues with the uh, with the deals, whereas. If you look at office, if you look at retail and anything else, uh, it has come to uh, basically a dead stop. And so uh, those are those are some obvious things kind of happening, some things that we are observing. And I hope that through our commentary, um, we can also share some information about this with you as well. Feel free to give us back your feedback. I would love to incorporate it into our little analysis of the market and provide some feedback to the audience and to the listeners about where things are heading and where they could be going. Today, we sit down with Pamela Anderson Brule, a co-founder and president of Anderson Brule Architects, the San Jose firm she started in 1984. Working exclusively in the public realm, Pamela created a new architectural practice model through her development of strategic process design, a process she and her team fine-tuned over the firm's 35-plus year history. Pamela was the first woman in Santa Clara County to be elevated to a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and was a past president of AIA Silicon Valley. A long-term advocate of women rooted in her all-girls high school education, Pamela founded the AIA Silicon Valley Women in Architecture Committee, and she has been an educator and lecturer at the San Jose State University and Notre Dame High School. Today, Pamela and her team are focused on successfully opening their own offices following the COVID-19 pandemic, while at the same time helping their clients consider what the new normal is going to be. Welcome, Pamela. Hi, Pam. Good afternoon. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Excellent. Where are you today? I am currently home, <laughs> as most people are um, working working from home. Great. And uh, Pam, you were saying that your office is now thinking about reopening. Um, tell us a little bit about that process and how you guys came to that decision and what resources are you using to you know, figure out what's the best way to accomplish that? Well, I think the, the, the way I would frame it is that we see it coming and in the, in the way we work and the fact we're strategic planners, we're strategically approaching what does it look like to reopen. We haven't um, set any dates and of course we're, we're following the protocol of the, of, uh, the county, but um, we're beginning to ask ourselves the questions because there are things that will need to happen probably from a policy standpoint, uh, from a physical space standpoint, and really from an emotional standpoint to, um, to really think about what does it mean to reopen. And we're, we're just having those dialogues um, at a firm-wide level and starting an uh, initiative with, a, with a, a team as well as doing uh, real research uh, in the world and, and finding out from best practices what are others thinking and doing. So really it's about us preparing for something um, way ahead of perhaps uh, actually getting the go-ahead. Yeah, and um, 
you know, some of the anecdotal feedback that I've heard is the companies are doing surveys. They're asking their employees, you know, how comfortable they feel about coming back and, you know, that kind of thing. Are you, you know, trying to employ similar strategies also? We've been doing um, since the beginning uh, what we call wellness check-ins, and we're using that um, kind of one-on-one format to begin to ask those personal questions because everybody is going to is responding differently and and has different needs. We are uh, also though doing a um, kind of a broader staff-wide workshops and looking into the industry at a whole and and what we may need to do as as architects, interior designers and strategic planners. And we're also looking at it from the firm's perspective and and so we're getting into a little bit more of the details around physical space needs, things planning ahead for things that we we know we're going to need to move forward on. And at the same time, as you said, we're also doing the the one-on-one wellness checks and just preparedness checks with folks. And um, and everybody's coming at this very differently and very uniquely. So treating each human as as its own unique yeah. um, own unique circumstance, um, and letting them you know talk about where they're, they're what they're thinking and where they're coming from, yeah. and, including with some not you know, wanting to continue to work from home and not actually come back to the office. So we're assessing that um, right now. Yeah, no, I can, I can imagine. I can imagine that can be very interesting and challenging at the same time. So let's take a step back, Pam. Um, you know, usually what I would like to do, uh, what I like to do with, um, you know, people that we, that we talk to is get a little bit of a background about your firm and, you know, who you guys are, who you are, how long have you been around. For the benefit of our audience, would, would you mind kind of giving us, you know, an elevator pitch about, you know, your, your company and, and what, what you guys um, have created there? Sure. I'd be happy to. So uh, we're Anderson Brulé Architects. Um, I'm one of the founders we founded in 1984. So we're entering our 36th year. And we really uh, founded the firm on the concept of creating a practice that is about sustaining communities. And one way we describe that is if you were going to create a whole new community, what is it that you'd need in it to sustain it? Um, so you'd need schools, you'd need health and wellness, you need um, sort of civic buildings or public buildings, and you need homes. So our, our work and our focus has always been around those things. Um, and then a huge percentage of our work is public. Uh, it's either public or quasi-public nonprofit work, uh, work. So we work in the public realm and really with the idea that that we're sustaining communities and, and really individuals within the community, including our own staff. And what we like to talk about is creating a legacy of design experiences. So we're designing experiences for people, um, ultimately, the experience you have when you come into a public facility. And we really are doing that by looking at balancing human needs, social, economic, environmental needs. So very holistic approach to to the practice that we do. And, you know, in the 30 five, 36 years now that we've been in practice are really at a national level renowned for our strategic work, uh, the upfront work that we do prior to uh, beginning an architectural project, uh, which is often we, we call it discovery. We discover the, you know, a lot of times people start a project and they don't quite know what the problem is. Um, and certainly architects are great at problem solving, but 
but sometimes they need to back it up and, and ask the question of, well, what is, what is the problem? Uh, and, then, and then how might we solve it? So we work with entities, institutions. Um, it could be an educational institution. It could be a medical institution, civic institution, and really help them frame um, some strategic direction on their future needs. And that could include services. It could include space needs could include operations. So it's a wide variety of things, but ultimately we're architects and interior designers, uh, and we bring those visions, those strategic plans uh, to fruition. Yeah. What are some of your notable projects that you're uh, especially proud of? Well, uh, one of the, the larger of our projects is the, is the San Jose State um, Joint Use Library for the city of San Jose and, and San Jose State University, the Martin Luther King Library. Our firm worked for two and a half years with the city and with the university to, uh, to de- develop the framework for that project and really, first of all, determine if it was feasible and secondly, define the, the why and the what of it. And then once the that work was done, and, and the city and the, and the university decided to move forward into architecture. Uh, then we were also on the architectural team that designed and, and brought the building through construction. So right. that you know is a, a local project that is quite renowned. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. So it's interesting. You talked about designing uh, spaces um, and communities and services within those. Um, our world has been kind of turned upside down recently, um, and I think a lot of uh, the sort of communal spaces, if you will, um, you know, are empty <laughs> these days. Uh, you know, tell us, you know, how does that affect you? You know, and 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 I, and I don't mean from a business sense, but more from kind of like a, hmm, we really need to sit back and really think about what this is going to look like in the future. Yeah, we've been thinking about it a lot and instantaneously. Architects are pretty fabulous at responding to to problems. And if you if you look at us as a whole, we are often uh, responding in ways that we establish uh, we establish policies and codes and ways that we construct and um, ways we keep people safe or ways we keep uh, the environment safe. So architects are very responsive in general to the needs of community, the needs of, of human beings. And so we, as a as an entire profession, are are, are looking at this and and as we did when when um, when earthquake quakes hit or, or there's floods, you know, when there's large events that take place and we're asking ourselves the question of what will change. And I think that, that there's, there's a myriad of things we have to think about. Uh, we, we have to think about the actual environment itself. Um, we know from research that air exchanges, for instance, within buildings will need to be looked at completely differently, understanding how, how this uh, virus travels and how it distributes itself, materials uh, that we use uh, will will change as well. Um, they're starting research is starting to show uh, that natural materials, natural woods, for instance, um, uh, the the virus lives less long on them compared to stainless steel and other products that we you know we use readily within the environments. So there's sort of this materiality standpoint, and then there's also the the thoughts around how people use space. You know, how do we begin to come into a space uh, in a touch free environment? And how do we, where do we sit? How do we sit? How do we choose, uh, you know, how many people are in a waiting room? And how do we, uh, how do we create a furniture setting, let's say, that 
that keeps people in safe distance from each other. So there, there, there is going to be a rethinking of space. I was um, just today reading an article in New York Times that was um, this, this idea that Manhattan is, is rethinking its whole use of office space. And there, I think every one of us, including our firm, is realizing, you know what? <laughs> this working from home thing works. It's not that bad. We're, we are able to produce enormous amounts of really effective work and have really effective communications and relationships through, uh, through the Internet. And so they're starting to rethink real estate. They're starting to rethink uh, space use. Yep. Um, and, you know, we all have long-term leases, more, more, more or less, but, you know, how will we use space in the future? And will we use it? I, and I think that the reworking or reuse of space or reconsidering uh, how space will be used will be, a, will be hugely a part of the architects and designers and strategic planners' work uh, as we think forward about the shift to what we used to think was important, we were all running around thinking we did not have enough conference space, for instance. And now it's like, do we even ever need to go into a conference room again? And would we be afraid to? That <laughs> would be another thing. So I think it's going to have a, a really large impact on space demand and reuse of space, even within the real estate market itself. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And and some anecdotal evidence that I've seen from some people who sit on different boards and you know things like that, they're telling me that they're able to, you know, not travel and accomplish sort of those board meetings and all of these things virtually. And, and they are also wondering, you know, what the impact will be on, um, on the market. Um, certainly some companies are announcing, I think Twitter announced earlier today that people can just choose to work from home going forward if they would like to. Uh, Facebook and Google are not bringing people back until January. Microsoft and I believe Amazon until October, but maybe they'll extend that as well. How do you how do you think? What's your perspective? You know, I you know, all of these companies are kind of maybe approaching it somewhat differently. But from from somebody who's been in this industry for several decades and understands this 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 you know how people behave in space and that kind of thing. What, what do you think will, will happen? Well, I think, again, I, I work more in the public realm, you know, so I work, you know, with folks that are the, you know, the county administrators, the, fo- the, the folks that, that serve the public. So it's, it's very different than, than um, large private organizations that can pivot and change. Um, yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not only focusing on, on that. I'm trying to, you know, get your understanding from, from others, sure. other side also. Well, I think that I, I think for one thing, we will realize that we need to organize organize space in and flow in a way that has less crossover of people. That that it, it that we really think about how do you come into a space and how do you circulate through a space and how do you what what spaces do you have access to and who has access to your spaces. So I think that that there is going to be some some issue or some uh, redesign of that thinking. I think that as much as people have learned to work from home, there are large uh, portions of the population where there is um, there is a need for customer service, for one-on-one, for um, and and rethinking how we will safely do that is is going to be a big part of of the work that cities, counties, you know, health agencies, everyone starts to work from that has that public interface, and you know, of course, we could 
go into those spaces and put plastic shields in front of everybody and have and have that kind of separation of humans. But but I think we're going to have to think about the empathy and the interface of, of, of human beings and how we will provide care as well as service at the same time. Yeah, certainly. Given that your focus has been on um, the public spaces, that obviously uh, includes a public process, uh, things like community forums and public interviews. And um, have you noticed already entities and counties and cities um, considering, you know, how they're going to conduct that going, going forward? Well, we, we have been doing these. This is one of our specializations and something we've been doing for absolute years. And, and we have already, we've, we've already been developing uh, tools and methods to reach what I would call the demographic population of a community. Um, in, the, in the olden days, um, not too long ago, if you had a community forum, let's say, and you invited people and gave them lots of warning and notification, oftentimes the folks that would show up would not actually reflect the demographics of the community. They would be perhaps seniors, many people with young children couldn't make it to an evening meeting, let's say. So we, for, for quite some time, have noticed this and, and began planning uh, differently. So we have been going to where they are. We, we might show up at a Parks and Rec event for an egg roll at Easter and be able to capture and talk to a whole bunch of people that have young children, or we might go to a Target on a Saturday uh, and, and be at the entry and, have, and, and do interface. So these were called pop-ups. So now that is that really is a difficult thing to think that we're going to be doing at least for for a while for many reasons. So what we've been doing is um, building tools that work uh, virtually and are able to have um, have interface with the public, which is really creative and, and able to to have them enter into virtual worlds. Perhaps do, they're using they're breaking into small groups. They're using poster stickers. They're gathering information. We're having a, a overall dialogues. We're help, they're building helping build models and, and scenarios and talk to us about them. And that's all happening in a virtual world. And they can be at home. I think our, our, we are reaching out to, for instance, the libraries um, that are often the bridge of um, folks having or not having Internet access, having the tools that they can participate. Sure. So this will be a, this will be a big deal. However, we're finding more and more um, a huge, a very small percentage of the population do not have cell phones. So, you know, we've been able to use techniques that are um, using a QR code on a cell phone where they they can participate in a public survey or they can be part of a public dialogue from their cell phone. So we are still working on um, on bridging that piece of the community that really is so very important. But we are finding that um, there are there are communities that know they have to move forward and they are and they're and they're looking at using uh, these tools. We've been using these tools in in public interactions. For instance, we've been um, involved in a design competition where we've had three public interviews and. All of our work and all of our all of the interface has been online in a very creative and and um, collaborative way, where people have been able to engage with us, and they can draw and move things, and we're drawing and moving things. So the tools are out there, and I think the more we're exploring this, um, you know, really the the idea that you don't have to drive three hours and go to an evening yeah. meeting and drive three hours back, and that you can reach people where they live, and they don't have to, you know, get a babysitter. Uh, or take time off from work, and they can engage, and even at their own, sometimes at their own time, at their own pace, so that there's something they can engage in. Um, they don't have to be there at a particular time to interface and to engage. So I think that there there are things that are going to come out of this epic and, and this event that we've been through 
that we'll really see as opportunities and, and be able to craft around those opportunities in a way that I think will, will ultimately prove to be quite positive. Yeah. When you and I spoke in preparation for this interview, one of one of the things that, that you mentioned was, you know, how the experiences are going to shift, you know, very widely and especially in some of these public places, things like, you know, what a daycare looks like, what does a library look like, what's going to happen mm-hmm. in colleges now. There's, you know, some some uh, notion of colleges going online, at least for for the foreseeable future in the in the fall. C- can you expand on this a little bit, and you know, uh, you know, give us a sense of you know maybe some actual things that that you think will be will be transformed? Well, we are, we are in the middle of doing a, a daycare facility on a college on a college campus, a community college campus, and and actually had an uh, a, you know stop point and a and a direct request to study the design based on on COVID-19 and some of the impacts that we would have within uh, an actual daycare facility. And and similarly to the list I, I was talking about earlier, I mean, we're looking at, you know, how do we, you know, walk, you walk in the door, what we used to have hydration stations with your water bottle filler and your, and your um, drinking fountain. Now we're going to have sanitation stations. We're going to have a place that the minute you walk in the door, um, a temperature could be read, uh, your hands are washed. Perhaps you're giving some, given some protective gear. And again, in a, in a, with small children, that's very, very difficult. They, they touch everything. Looking at the surfaces that are being used and ways that, that the protocol will be for cleaning those. Uh, looking at air exchange uh, within space, and one of the things we're finding in our research is level the level of humidity actually helps. The drier the air, the more the particles um, disperse. Um, so how do you and how do you bring natural ventilation in? How do you bring uh, daylighting? Actually helps considerably. So there's there's this idea that you sit and think about a day, a daycare with small children, and you know, and and think of all of the, the the touch points and all of the ways that you know beyond just the protocol of the actual teachers. What can we do to physical space to make it uh, more flexible, more mobile, and to really be able to help uh, with with caring for the children. Yeah. The groups with uh, which you're working, are they also considering, you know, retrofitting some of their spaces? So one of the um, projects that we're working on is, is actually a renovation of a, um, a college, uh, a college facility into a learning center. And I think the, so it was already a retro, we were already in the midst of it. And so part of it is stopping and asking question, okay, how will, how will we respond to this? In a lot, a lot of, uh, of this is, is really sort of opening up space and allowing there to be flexibility. There may be for a period of time that we don't know um, a lower population. In other words, once once colleges are opened up again, having fewer people in spaces, having more individual seating and spreading folks around. So we used to do, for instance, we might do group seating uh, and or a booth, or we might do, you know, an area where you're lined up on a bar seating and everybody's lined up next to each other. So we're now looking at furniture and furniture is being made as we speak that starts to have protective panels between seating uh, or separated seating. And so the furniture industry themselves are reacting, you know, as fast as they possibly can. But I think, I think, flexibility, uh, visibility, uh, sight lines to see who's where. As I said, these sanitation stations as you come right in the door and hand washing sinks the minute you walk in a facility. These kinds of things are going to be, are going to immediately be uh, and are being designed into the thinking that's going on on projects that are even underway. 
Yeah. Um, you also mentioned this concept of ABA anywhere, uh, something that you guys practice. Tell us a little bit about that and you know how it's you know helping your firm move forward. Sure. I, I think um, we we have initiatives within our firm and and. For us, an initiative equals an innovation. We develop these uh, each year and we work to implement them. Um, so they might last um, a year or they might last two or three years, depending on the level of complexity to the initiative. And so we started an initiative called ABA Anywhere. And it really was driven by the fact that the, the cost of living in the Bay Area is um, really intense, that people's commutes are getting longer and longer that families are are struggling more and more to balance work and life. And so we embrace fully the idea that we should have a an ability for any one of our staff to work from anywhere. And so we were already, had already begun, we'd had, had over two years of thinking about and, you know, how do we hold a, how do we keep culture together if we're working anywhere? Yeah. What, what infrastructure do we need? What software do we need? How do we do it? What do we migrate onto the cloud? What do we, you know, what, what does the server look like? I mean, many, many issues. And so we were, we had been working on that and developing things so that, that as the, as the pandemic became clearer from the day we first found out that the first person in Santa Clara County had it, we created what we call the three-step process. It's you know step one, step two, step three. Step one was taking the concept of ABA anywhere and saying, okay, what what's left? <laughs> you know, what more do we have to do? If this happened tomorrow, what would we have to do? And we had uh, surveys that went out to the, each of our employees. They all went home and assessed their needs and assessed their bandwidths, assessed their furniture, their their how would they set up. Uh, we were able then to uh, establish a, a way that we'd exit um, the firm. Uh, so when we moved to step two, we started to inventory our, our uh, equipment and literally they could take their chair, their screens, their really anything that they needed to take home to work. Uh, we were also purchasing in, in, in places where we had gaps. Um, we were purchasing laptops or software, let's say, or licensing that would allow them to continue to work. So by step three, when we we called it, we just basically said, and, and we called it before the county called it, we, we said, we're going home. Like everybody leave. They yeah. they left with their with the you know their rolling chairs, their stuff. It had already been inventoried. We already knew they already knew where they were going to set it up at home, and so that was a big part of it. So within 24 hours, we had totally pivoted to online, which is pretty amazing. And I and hats off to my team for um, for everything they did prior to and during uh, that 24 hour period. I think the other thing is we instantaneously um, started talking to and benchmarking other companies, and we learned that you know we, we it's kind of evident, but clear communication, empathy of what everyone was going through. We started having weekly check-ins, not not we, we used to do monthly, but but I mean full-on staff meetings that we're talking about what we expected, policies, worries. Uh, we set up one-on-one wellness check-ins with principals and staff. We had social hours immediately. We have a fun committee. We set up uh, inside of uh, our t- we use Teams and we set up a, a water cooler where people put funny pictures or we have we have a hat day or something. Yeah. So. We kind of instantaneously uh, did the, did the the hard stuff, you know, getting getting people home with the right equipment, but also the cultural and and, and communication stuff that that just really really helped. Yeah. So then, 
How does your effort to bring everybody back into the office, or not everybody bring back to the office, but the effort to open the office back up then play into the ABA Anywhere um, concept now? Uh, do you have to augment it? Do you have to change it? Because maybe some people who thought they wanted to work in the office now, they want more flexibility. Is is it a time to to you know re- rethink how that works also? Well, we had always we had always been working towards the goal that it could you could be anywhere, yeah. right? So that 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 there was a certain amount of personal freedom to to uh, deciding. We did have policy associated with it. Um, a certain time you had to be in the in the firm a certain amount of time in sure. order to absorb the culture and understand things. So you know, I think that this will be interesting. I've been talking to people and through the, the the staff work we're doing, there are certain people that do not want to come back. That they have found a really good balance of work. That they that they a lot of them might be parents with young children, or for whatever reason they just feel safer. But there are there are quite a few others that's like, oh please let me come back. So I think that that it will be about assessing you know what you know what does the workforce look like that's coming back. So that's one thing, and and we. We've been talking about how we redesign space and how we redesign the flow of, of, you know, what happens when you come in the door. Actually talking to our um, building owners, we're creating a list of things we would like them to accomplish for for us as tenants, um, because, you know, right from the minute you walk in the front door to how you use the elevator to how you flow through the building is something that um, is on our list yeah. uh, that we, we talk to our clients about. So there are a lot of things that we're doing now and, and we're in the middle of planning. So I think that, that it will, it will emerge uh, over the next, uh, over the next two weeks. Yeah. Pam, one of the hallmarks of uh, successful companies is I think their ability to pivot and transform and change in, you know, despite of anything that is thrown their way, uh, whether it's a pandemic or a or an economic calamity. Tell us a little bit about you know lessons learned from the past cycles that you know you guys are employing today, and that kind of you know give you hope for what's 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 to come. Yeah, I, I think you know we are a strategic planning firm at the at the foundation of of who we are and what we do, and and what that means is that we are very proactive. And in in having founded the firm, you know, as I said over thirty five years ago, I've been through I've been through three if not more major things where there was, you know, huge impacts that, that really came from the outside in. And I think we've learned a lot from that. We've learned that you have to be decisive, that you have to have a plan, you know, you step one, step two, step three. I think we've also learned that we have to be incredibly transparent with our communications. We did not let go of a single employee uh, during this uh, time. uh, And, and I think we we had we actually created a PTO uh, pool, and people were donating their PTO into the pool to allow other people to use. If in fact they that we were slow, and there were some people that didn't you know didn't have work, yeah, but rather than thinking of about letting them go, we collectively <laughs> were um, donating to them. So I, I think to 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 answer your question, to to be ready for anything, you have to. Be, you have to have a plan. You have to be decisive. You have to be transparent and communicate that well. And you have to provide really a good sense of reason behind things. I remember in 2010 when things just really, you know, it started in 2008. They just didn't turn around. We did move from, you know, a, a mid 40 person firm and down into, I think at one point, I think maybe 15. And, and what we had to be clear about is that our objective as a business is to remain in business 
in order to be there for the generation that is there, but also the generation to come. And that we have to be in that, we have to be strategic. And even in, in the, the time of the 2010, we placed employees in other firms unless they did not want to be. So we, we, we put together an entire piece of work that meant we were personally calling folks and asking, do you have work? Could you hire? You know, and, and I think part of it for me is that this is personal. You know, this, these are, these are humans that some of which I've worked with for 25 years and, and you, and if you care about them, then you help get them to the next place that, 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 that they need to be. And and you have to unfortunately have them be. But in this case, we, we worked with some consultants. They're like, okay, so what's your strategy for who, you know, who are you letting go or who you, who are you laying off? And I'm like, we're, we're not laying anybody off. I mean, it's not our strategy to lay people off. It's our strategy to keep our staff intact because if in fact you achieve uh, what we have achieved, which is to pivot and to really change um, and, and bring in work that's, you know, we had a whole bunch, we had, we had a whole bunch of our work just stop and schedule stopped. And we had to just pivot and just think about who does need us right now and what value can we bring. And we moved from being really, really in, in just kind of like going, oh my God, we don't have enough work to now having being in a place where we're actually hiring. And that's in a very, very short period of time. But our, I, I, I probably, and, and I would say that this majority of our firm has never worked so hard. And, and I've worked hard my whole life. We reached out to clients. We reached out to folks that we'd been working with in the past. We, we offer our strategic services, which actually right now are very sought after um, in this time because we help people pivot. So I think that's, that really is, is what we focused on. And, and those are the key strategies that we've used. Great. Pam, uh, those are very refreshing and positive and optimistic words. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Stay safe. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. 